0: Number 13. God's Mission. Fourth Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 13 in the quarter on God's Mission, My Mission. And the title of this chapter is The End of God's Mission. And Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and Michael is going to offer the opening prayer.
2: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to put away the cares and concerns of our daily lives and focus on you and what you have in store for us. And we praise you and we give you homage for all the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. And we thank you in the name of Jesus the Christ, your only begotten Son, in community with the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
3: Amen. Thank you, Michael. And so here we are for the lesson number 13 and the last lesson on the quarter. If you look under number one, the statement of purpose says that in this lesson, we will see that Revelation is a missionary book focused on missionary God who is calling us to be a missionary church. And we will proclaim the present truth to the world until everyone has made the choice for or against God. So if you go to Revelation one, and first seven verses which first three verses speak about the progress of revelation how it comes from god through the angels and through john let's start from verse four and five
4: john to the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever.
3: Okay, so how does it show that the whole God has involved in mission? John bows down to God and he worships him. There is a corporate worship in the book of Revelation. There is an individual worship in the book of Revelation. Can you see the Father who is involved, who was and is and is to come, and the Holy Spirit who is among the churches, and Jesus the faithful witness and the firstborn of dead. So he has a preeminent position among all those who were resurrected and god is using his power to get the message across and to bring the victory so what does it mean when it says that god created us he made us kingdom or kings in some documents some manuscripts and priests what is god trying to achieve with this So in Genesis 1, you have the story of creation and ancient kings claim that they need to be worshipped because they are the incarnation of the gods. So the pharaoh is the son of God Ra, the son of Sun. And the story of creation shows no, not only the king, but everybody, males and females, everybody is an image of God and everybody carries this dignity as an image of God. And then you come to Revelation, and when the story is finished, then you have, in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story, then you have the fall, the complication, and then you come to Revelation, and the conclusion of the story is, in verse 6, he made us kings, or kingdom, and priests. So what is it that God wants to do? What is salvation? What is redemption? Nancy?
4: Isn't he showing that he wants to give us our dignity back, our value back?
3: and status? Dignity, value. That's right. So he offers something that a restoration of everything that sin damaged. Remember, these Asian societies were about honor and shame. And by lifting up human children into the position of kings and priests, he gives them a status and gives them the task. They are the mode of revelation. If you want to know about God, you just observe the priests. Remember the Queen of Sheba? When she came, she observed the king and what the priest did in the temple in order to learn something about God of Solomon, God of Israel. And she's impressed how they conduct themselves. And they say, wow, I haven't seen anything like this. Everywhere else is about taking advantage of the poor, of the less fortunate. It's about political power positioning. But here I see something else, something different. So... What is this mission that God is trying to accomplish according to Revelation with humanity?
5: Larry? Could it be that the mission is to give everybody ample, adequate evidence to make a fully informed decision? And based on that, then everything comes to a conclusion?
6: Okay. Henry? Since the book of Genesis, God showed himself, especially in creation time, to be a serpent God. To be providing for his creatures and later on when priests come part of the story they are also describing the function to serve as the representatives of god to show that relationship with god therefore in the book of revelation god is meaning for his saints at the latter days to serve in the same way the same capacity to serve humanity with the goodness of god that's right So, we cannot talk about completing the
3: mission unless we see the aspect of servanthood. So, God is serving the creation. He puts the image in the center of the garden. All other nations build the temple and put the image of God in the temple. But God creates humanity and puts that image of Himself, humanity in the midst of the Garden of Eden that functions as a temple. And the priests in the tabernacle, Yes, yeah, sure, they have to trim the lights. But not only that, all aspects of the priestly service is representing who God is. Is perceived as servanthood. And uh, yes, God is going to win, but he's not going to win because of a power. He's not going to win because he will steamroll everything and everybody into submission. If that was the case, he would have won a long time ago. But it's about servanthood that God, who is a servant leader, will have a community of people who are servants. And this is what it means that they are kings and priests. Now, if they are all kings, who is going to serve them? It's no fun to be a king if you don't have a battalion of people around you fulfilling your every whim and wish and serving you. But that's exactly missing the point. If all are priests, where are the friends? Jesus says, I don't want you to be slaves. I want you to be friends. So, what is that trying to teach us?
5: Larry? Was it the servanthood issue that caused Lucifer to rebel? Or why is this such an important issue?
3: So, when God says, you bow down to this son of the morning star or the morning dawn, and you don't bow down to this son of the morning star, because this one is created and the other is God like me, what is it that brings Lucifer to the Why, if I am not receiving the same homage, honor, and worship as Jesus does, am I any worse? even to the point that it's worth the rebellion and the painful mess that it creates for the whole of universe. Isn't that lack of humility and pride? Remember the quotation that when it was necessary to reveal Jesus to the angels, he walked so humbly among them as an angel, that one day God the Father needs to bring him, have a special assembly and say, let me tell you, this angel is not an angel, he's God like me. Because all the angels have no clue that this is almighty God. He doesn't have a problem to be humble and to serve them, to reveal the character. As Henry put in the chart, God will not win because he defeated his enemies, but because he demonstrated his serving, loving character.
7: The contrast from last week's lesson of Haman wanting to be king and Mordecai wanting to serve the community again comes out in Revelation. In what form? As you just mentioned, Daniel, the the two covering cherubs. One wants to be king, the other, Christ, wants to serve.
3: In order to reveal God's character to his creatures. Peter says, if I were you, I would not be washing the feet of these servants. You will not do this, meaning if I were in your position, I would not do it. And Jesus says, precisely, that's why I am doing it. And if you don't understand it, you don't have a part with me. You cannot be part of the movement that I am creating because you think differently in different value structures than I do. It's easy to take the towel when you have nothing in your hands but the towel. If you are unskilled and you can't get any decent job, then you do the job that is available. But when Jesus realized he came from heaven and he's returning to heaven and the Father gave him everything into his hands, he took what? Into his hands, a towel. And shows, I am among you as one who serves. So we cannot talk about completing God's mission unless we get this perspective, how God is going to complete his mission and win his cause and win the war. That's why he doesn't say the ballistic missiles, the tanks, sends a little baby, newborn baby into enemy's territory. No one is scared of a small newborn infant because God doesn't need to scare people. He's there to serve. Michael Bell. Yeah, what I need to
2: do is to humble myself. And that, unfortunately, in certain circumstances, that's difficult to do. And I think it's something that plagues every human being at some time or another in their lives. And I heard several years ago a line that I like, which is, the thing that separates me from you and me from God as I understand God is my own human ego, my own self-pride. And I think that's what the core of it was with Satan. As John Milton said in Paradise Lost, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And I think that sums up what was going on.
3: Better to be first in a village than second in Rome. Yeah. If we are not clear on this, we are not going to understand how God is going to win. Which brings us to the lesson on Monday to the three angels' messages. Now, it says in Revelation 18.4 that the whole earth was enlightened by the glory and revelation 18:1 saw this another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor by the glory and so if you see the context why are the three angels messages so important how do they contribute to the revelation of god's glory should we be concerned about those messages because the pioneers said they are important can you see from the book of revelation the significance Now, we had the whole quarter on the three angels' messages, so that shouldn't be a difficult question. Now that you understand their significance and importance, what's the connection between the three angels' messages and mission? Is it a party line that we are supposed to repeat? Or can you see from the structure of the book of Revelation that, yes, God is not going to complete His mission. The earth is not going to be illuminated with the revelation of God's character unless people get something important about who God is. In Revelation 13, you have the whole world following after the beast, thinking they are serving God, but they are deceived. And then Revelation 14 says, actually, not the whole world. There were people of certain quality, you know, 144,000, remember? Numbers in Revelation do not represent quantity, they represent quality. So there were people of certain quality who followed the Lamb, Who did not follow the beast, who were not deceived, but they followed the lamb. Why is it that they followed the lamb? Why is it that they were not deceived? Verses 6 to 12, Revelation 14. Nancy.
4: I was just thinking, one of the purposes of the three angels' messages, isn't it God's last pleading with his children to look at who he is, the truth about him, and make a decision, and, and how he really is pleading. Like Brian would say, like a dad crying out to a son who's about to jump off a cliff and not know it, backing up into a cliff. That God is, by understanding how the worst people are in history in the scriptures, the more God trembled the earth and the louder he spoke to get their attention and to stop for a moment where he preferred to talk in the still small voice like he did to Elijah at the end. And But he cares enough. In the three angels messages to really sound terrible very frightening but because he cares so much for everybody here
3: yes but we said in that quarter that his language needs to reflect the language of the beast so the beast says if you are not going to do this these are going to be the consequences you either submit you comply or you pay the price and so god needs to match that and say but if you d- decide to go with the beast, these are the consequences. You need to be aware of that. So it's not the God's preferred language. Ellen so Len White would say God does not take a test from language in the inspired writings. They just couch it in the language that cor- mirrors, corresponds with what the beast is doing. But why is it that the whole earth needs to be enlightened, illuminated by the revelation of God's glory, Or to use the quotation from Christ Object Lessons that Nancy already alluded to, the last message of God to be given to the dying world is a revelation of God's character of love. Once again, my question, did you need Ellen White to tell you that? Or would you get that from reading the Bible? Because it's all there. Ellen White says, you wouldn't need me if you were doing proper reading, as we mentioned when... We read about the Syrophoenician woman. Yes, you can get the message from Desire of Ages, but it's all there in the text. You can see there that the message is done.
5: Referring to the three angels' message, when I read about the first angel's message, I would say for most of my life, when it said fear God, etc., I always assumed that it was a time that God was going to judge us. But at least in the version I read it in now or in more recent times, I think that if I read this correctly, it says, fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment is coming. And so I now interpret that to mean it's the hour in which we can begin to judge him or there's enough information that we can finally judge him. And so he's allowing us now to look at him and see who he really is without all of, I think previous to this, there wasn't enough information. We couldn't really see him. And so at this point in time, it's appropriate to give him glory because he's willing to be judged. And I think that it is rather strange to think that God who created us is now willing to be judged by us and that will bring glory to him.
3: Yes, so it's an hour of his judgment. Often we read it that it's of our judgment, but the problem of sin did not start when you and I appeared in this universe. And when we are not alive anymore, the problems of this world or universe are not going to be resolved. So the problem of sin will continue beyond our existence. So something bigger needs to be resolved than things concerning your sins and my sins. Now, as creatures preoccupied with our standing, what about me? We tend to... Look at judgment fearfully because the message, wait, one day you will get it. But God doesn't need to use this to ascertain his authority. And so that's why he says the hour of his judgment has come and you can make up your mind where you want to stand in relationship to him in the conflict about good and evil. John?
7: Revelation is quite clear that what God is doing is holding back the winds of strife. But as the story in Revelation progresses, God's restriction of Satan's power is gradually withdrawn. And it's God revealing that he doesn't use might and power, that it is Lucifer that uses that method to control and coerce individuals. And the whole book is a contrast of the dragon and of God. That God is, in verse 4 of chapter 1, is who is and who was and is to come. And the same expression, or very similar expression, is used to describe the beast or the dragon. The contrast between God and the dragon in Revelation is remarkable. And if you miss that, and just read it as God acting rather than God responding to Lucifer's actions, Satan's actions then you've misread the story.
3: And the beast is going into perdition because every time it exercises its power, it brings destruction, and God is going to win, not because he uses power, but in a non-violent way. It's very clear in the book of Revelation. All right? Now, if you look at Revelation 14, after the three angels' messages are given, so they are the reason why some people are not deceived why some people follow the lamb wherever he goes rather than following the beast. It says, here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Now, why there is a need for patience, for endurance on the part of the saints? The Bible assures us that God is going to win, but it will take patience, endurance on the part of the saints to believe it. So what is it about God's mission that requires patience on our part? Lou?
4: Well, it seems that God is so unwilling for anybody to be lost, that he's just extending and extending, it seems like, the time. And of course, now as we're living in these final times, the horrific devastations that are going on in the entire world from weather things to people shooting people and all these things that have never been like they are now. And yet God knows all that. He sees all that. And I'm sure he's sorry that we have to go through all of that, but he's not willing that any should perish, we're told. And I think he's just holding out till every heart has had the opportunity to accept his love and follow his way. And it doesn't mean they're going to come through the same keyhole that I understand. It's the heart responding to the love
8: of God. And that's what he's waiting for.
3: Okay, thank you. Let's go to Ashley and then Livius.
8: It seems every generation tends to think, like, oh, this must be it. (laughs) Like, this is when he's coming back from, it seems like since he left, like that generation seemed to think it was then. And in Ellen White's time, that was, of course, like the sense. And we still hear that today. So yeah, maybe that message of being patient and not making too many assumptions is still has been relevant ever since he departed. So that was my idea. (laughs)
3: Okay, thank you. and every generation was wrong about that part until the very last one that will be right, but all the preceding were wrong. So be careful how much you beat the drum and emphasize that because all the generations who said that before us got it wrong. So the probability that we are not <laughs> getting it right might be very high. Yet in spite of that, there are way too many people nowadays for whom the main message to be given to the dying world is that's it, that's the end. It's going to fall now now. What does that create and what kind of motivation does that provide to get to know God? That's questionable. And there was a lesson in the Great Disappointment when you had 250,000 people waiting for the Second Coming, because that's how influential and successful was the preaching of William Miller. Yet, when it did not happen, majority of people said, never again, we are going to study apocalyptic prophecies. Let's forget it. That's not the way to go. And so it was only a handful, some researchers say about 300 people who said there was something good in all that bad and mess that it created that should not be thrown out with the bathwater.
1: Livius? So I think there are several reasons why we need patience and why there's a delay. Well, for one is that The four angels are holding back the four winds so that the servants of our God are sealed on their foreheads. That's the first requirement. And that takes time to correctly understand God's character and represent him as priests. And then the big one for to have patience is is that God does not coerce. He does not force. So people have to be convinced in their own mind. And that takes time for that convincing to happen. And I think that's an interesting aspect of God's character is that he waits for them to come to a decision. So I think that's why we need patience, is to have people come to their own conclusions.
3: And the way how God exercises his patience is amazing. So he doesn't need to tell Nicodemus, make up your mind. If you want to follow me, then I'm not going to tolerate this clandestine mode of discipleship. Why can't you make up your mind? He knows that he will come in due time and be public with his commitment to Jesus. So God is patient with Nicodemus. God is patient with Joseph of Arimathea. And when the time comes, he will take his stand where the disciples should be standing. He is standing there. And so God is not threatened by the flow of time. He can respect that. And he knows that when the evidence is gathered, People will make up their mind. It's us and evangelists who are a little bit impatient. And we say, you know, the water in the baptismal pool is already heated up. So make up your mind quickly. Do it now. And we do more damage than good. Iris?
0: There is also in that process of the revelation of God's character. In this interim time, there's also a price that is being paid. When the souls that are slain cry from underneath the altar... How long, Lord, until you set things right? And I think it has this parallel. Here is the revelation. This is Christ, the Messiah. Then comes the cross. It just seems to go in the wrong direction. If the Messiah is here, how can it be that he is at a cross? And if God is powerful and if he is the only legitimate. God to reign the universe. Why all these delays? Why more wars? Why more earthquakes and catastrophes? And I think sometimes it seems like, are we just following fables? Are we just making it all up? We are in that interim space where Satan has to be unmasked for who he is counterfeit religion is unmasked, and God is not yet rightfully assuming his legitimate power. And I think that to hold that space where things are not right, where they are off, where they are often going in the wrong direction, requires a firm faith in who God is. And that despite what we see unfolding, God is still legitimate, God is still good, he will set things right, even though they are not right right now.
3: Yes, it's so important, because if the conflict was about the power, God could have steamrolled it and won it a long time ago. But that doesn't win you the allegiance of the heart. It just gets you the compliance, and God is not interested in that. But meanwhile, he's going to be misunderstood because of his lack of using the power. And it's interesting that, to quote Ellen White, the crisis arrived in the government of God before the flood, because the angels just thought, if we had a little bit more leadership here, strong leadership, things did not need to get out of hand, didn't need to get this bad. And so God shows, with the show of power, to the extent that patriarchs and prophets, it says that Satan was trembled for his life. Now, remember, he's a spiritual being. Water in your lungs, or mine lungs, means that's it. We are dead. But Satan doesn't have lungs. He's not afraid that the water will get into his lungs and... He is going to drown. So imagine the show of power of all these geological processes so that he is so scared that he thinks that, oh, this show of power is going to destroy me. And you read back to Genesis, and the problem still persists. All that show of power did not achieve what God wanted. You still have the problem with evil in the human heart, with sin and the struggle, even those who survived in the ark. John,
7: in the danger of repeating what's already been said, I was going to mention that the times that God has used force, it hasn't produced what God desires, relationship. It drives people away. And God works through revelation, revealing who he is and who his opponent is. The other reason why there is a delay is there needs to be a dual harvest. Not only do the people of God need to be ready, but the grape harvest needs to be ready. So the time has got to be right, and God can't use coercion to achieve that timing, that correct time when the time is right. He's got to wait for events to be right in order for the revelation to occur.
3: Yeah, and God works through revelation. That means God gives the revelation to Jesus. Jesus gives it to the angel. Angel gives it to John. John gives it to the churches. Then they copy the messages, and then you buy the Bible, and you get it. And we all play an important part of that in that revelation. And your understanding of God's revelation influences other people and their understanding. So we all have a role to play in this mission. We talk about the three angels' messages, as the lesson says, we must never lose sight of our special calling and mission. The danger talking about the 300 mission is that, wait a minute, so who is special in this? Is it us or is it a message about a special God? So that at the end it becomes about us and our mission. And we said in this quarter, when it's about us and our mission, somebody is going to be hurt. You can be sure of that. It cannot be about us. It must be about God and his mission. So when the Bible says that this message needs to go to every kindred, nation, tongue and people, once again, remember the numbers do not mean... Quantity it means quality, so it means everybody. The angels are the four corners of the earth. Why every kindred, nation, or nation, tribe, tongue, and people are important? What does it say to you about God? Remember the early Adventists who believed that because the message is here in America and all the nations are represented here, that's why we only need to preach the Adventism in United States. And then they discover that actually there is a world beyond America. So why this universal message?
0: Because it's not an exclusive, but an inclusive God who cares about all kindreds, tongues, and nations. All are his children. Then, when Adventists embraced that call, made it a worldwide church and not just a local congregation.
3: Yes. So all are important in God's eyes. All have something to contribute, which brings us to... Matthew 28, when Jesus says, wherever you go, remember is a participle, going, wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever the activity, immerse people in the Trinitarian reality. So it's not just sprinkling, here little and there little, but make sure that people are immersed, that people can experience and see what, who God is like, the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. And when people are immersed in that Trinitarian reality, that community that God desires, then they will come on God's side. They will make the decision for him. So, yes, but it's easy to say the only question remaining is how are you going to respond? Sure, subjectively, that's a very important question because your eternity depends on that. But objectively, there is more than this question. How am I going to respond? How are you going to respond? Because God can lose you and me and still win the war. So how do we, Wednesday's lesson, success in mission. How do you measure success? How do you know that you are successful? Now take BMW or Tesla company. They know when they are successful. It's easy to measure. It's the number of cars that you sell. And if your slogan is our car in every household, then you know either you have achieved it or you have not. But how do you measure mission? What is it that God is interested in, ultimately? And if God is interested in matters of heart, how do you measure that? Notice, as one of the gurus of leadership said under number four, if you measure the wrong things, the results are more detrimental than if you didn't measure at all. Because if you don't measure, you don't know what you are doing well or what you are doing bad. But if you measure the wrong things, you create an illusion of success why the reality is not as pink and nice as you think it is. The problem is not the reality. The problem is that you are measuring the wrong thing. And as Karen put in the chart, you cannot measure the work of the Holy Spirit. Or under number five, I said, because spiritual things, spiritual matters are inherently difficult to quantify. Now, God wants a generous heart. How do you measure that? Remember when Jesus is watching the temple treasury there are people who come and with the show put large amounts of money there so that they can be seen by other people look at me look at how much i am doing and jesus is unimpressed and then comes a little poor widow and she puts two mites two lepta two little coins the smallest coin in greek language and jesus is impressed why because spiritual matters are difficult to quantify. How do you measure that? Jesus is more impressed with her two little coins than with all the riches than the rich people offered there. Now, it's easy to measure how much you put in the offering basket because that's easy to quantify. You have it in dollars, in cents, in euros, in pounds, in shekels, whatever currency you want to use. But if God looks at the heart, that's not easy to measure. And so either we don't even try or we measure things which are easily measurable like attendance and then we worship success because a mega church huge attendance is a symbol of success or we measure donations so if you get a million dollar donation that means god is on your side because you wouldn't get million dollars if god wasn't blessing your ministry your organization or how impressive are your facilities and of course the result is that people say give me give me give me more better parking, better service, and you just create consumers' mentality. Is God fulfilling completing his mission this way? Lou?
4: Several have already alluded to in the chat that it's not our job to measure. It's not my job to try to measure myself. It's not my job to try to measure those around me or the success or failure of what's happening, that's all up to God and the Holy Spirit. And I'm really thankful for that, because if I try to look at myself and measure where I'm standing at or whatever else, it takes my eyes off of Jesus and off of God. And I just don't think that measuring is my job for me, myself or anybody else.
3: Okay, thank you. But what creates the motivation then so that tomorrow you are better, closer to God than yesterday, if you don't measure?
4: It's a daily coming to Him. I don't come to Him to measure. I come to Him to connect my heart to His heart and let the Holy Spirit rule in my life. And I don't need to measure. I just think when I start looking at myself to measure, I've taken my eyes off of my Heavenly Father. And so I don't like the measuring stick.
3: Okay. And so what happens when we come closer to Him? He
4: lives in my heart. He changes me. And that's His job. And He does.
3: Yeah, that's the outcome of it. But what happens when we come closer to His holiness?
4: Oh, I see my great need.
3: The closer we come to Him, the more sinful we see ourselves. That's right. And so this is the struggle. You are exposed to things you don't like, you don't enjoy. Now, are you going to keep coming closer to him so that you have more discomfort? And here is where legalism comes, that once you become more interested in your own comfort, than in coming closer to him, you are going to cut closeness for the sake of comfort. And that's why God can't keep working in you, because ultimately he's more interested in your growth than he's interested in your comfort. So the closer I come to him, the more disappointed I am with myself. Because today I see things I didn't see a year or five years or 10 years ago. But because I know that God does not evaluate me on my performance, though I am disappointed, I am not discouraged. Because I know the closer I come, the more he will work in me and on me and transform me into his glory. And the more I will reflect him. But all this talk that we need to read the Bible more, we need to pray longer, more, or you know meditate, mm, wait a minute. You need to be changed. If you are meditating on things that you know and you are not learning anything new, if you are not exposed to things which are not comfortable, you are not getting closer. And that's why it's so important that the text functions as an agent of discomfort in us and tells me things I don't want to hear and touches me where I don't want to be touched. Otherwise, there is no growth. And God is not fulfilling and completing his mission. And so when we talk about the completing the mission in the context of the book of Revelation, Yes, God is going to win because of his character, not because of his power, but he somehow needs to deal with the confirmation bias in me so that I just read what I want to hear and confirm what I always believed. Isn't that amazing? We have looked at the Bible and it teaches exactly what we have always believed. Thank you, Jesus, hallelujah. Now you had a pleasant
5: experience, but you have not learned anything. You are not closer to God. Dan? I think this is a really important subject And I think sometimes we don't understand it quite correctly because if we see more of our faults as we come to close to Christ, you know, maybe we don't want to get too close. But I would suggest a alternate to that. And that is as closer we get to Christ, in many respects, the more humble we become. And I think there's a quality about humility. That is that there's a certain maturity that comes with humility, I believe. And because we can tolerate more, as we get closer to God, because he's helped us to grow, then I think it is within that context that we can see more of ourselves and are willing to accept the fact that we have certain deficiencies, which maybe earlier or not earlier, we couldn't admit. And so I think the fact that God strengthens us gives us greater insights, mental strength, and within that context that God reveals to us what next steps we can take. So I don't see it as a bad thing. And during my devotional ideas, a time I'm impressed by my shortcomings, because I think God wouldn't show this to me or remind me of those things if he didn't think that I had it in me to take it. And so I think that we should feel comfortable that God is working within us, and that he is giving us the psychological strength to face those problems.
3: Yeah, he's not doing this to embarrass us or to make us feel bad about ourselves. He's doing this to draw us closer to him and to make us more effective tools in his hands, because it contributes to our growth. Michael?
2: I don't rob and I don't murder and those kinds of things, but I'm not tempted to do those things. But I am tempted to be short-tempered at times with my wife and be inconsiderate of other people. And I, more than once, I'll do something to Think about it. Why did I do that again? Or why didn't I do such and such? And the older I get, the more conscious I become of my shortcomings. And I remember one time I was listening to a friend who said, he talked to a guy asking him he's been a great advisor. And I told him about the problems I was having with my wife. And he said, you want a better wife? And he said, of course I do. And he said, then be a better husband. And. I hear those things and say, wait a minute, that's not the answer I was looking for. But it's those simple things. It's those very simple things. And I was told a long time ago, if you want to be a better person, be honest in all your affairs. And that means every single aspect of your life. As honest you can become. And I got to admit to you, sometimes that's difficult.
3: Yeah, thank you. So that's how you know that God has not given up on you. That's how I know that God is alive. Because he still tells me things which are wrong with me. That means he's still interested in my growth. He still draws me closer to him. Rita?
0: We perhaps should look on God as the master physician healer. I'm diagnostician first. We go to him. We kind of know that there's something missing. There's something wrong, but we don't know what it is. And we can look to God and we can start to see what the problem is. But it's not a problem we can solve ourselves, but it is a problem that God can as a physician. I'll diagnose a problem and I can show you what the cure is. It's up to you now to go along with the treatment.
3: Yes. So how do we need to finish the quarter? What is it that we need to measure? What is success in mission? How is God going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish? Mission completed when it will be. What would you say in light
6: of what we just said, Henry? I will submit the idea that his mission has been already accomplished. He already did what he was supposed to be done. It is up to me to decide if that resonates with me or not. He cannot do anything else. I mean, he he did it all already. It's clearly demonstrated. Some of us can see it. It took me a long time to see it, but... He's still patient enough that even though he won a long time ago presenting his case, he's still open to wait for the opportunity that we can have to share our ideas or our beliefs with others about that demonstration that was made. But he already completed his mission.
3: And he's not going to throw bricks on my head in order to achieve what he wants. And as we said in the previous lesson, if he can work with people, broken people like those in the book of Esther, so that we need to have a sanitized version for children's Sabbath school, because if we read what is there in the text, it offends us because we somehow feel, no, she's a good girl. I remember as a young boy growing up, I always thought being a little bit surprised by the lack of good marriages in the Bible. I always thought if only Esther and Daniel would get married, that would be a happy marriage in the Bible. And then I discovered that mm, actually her moral compass and convictions were very different from what I was taught in my childhood that good Adventists should look like. But the good news is that God can work with people like that and still accomplish his mission. Because it's not about us, it's about him, Iris.
0: So... I think in light of what we discussed, I think it is embracing the calling that God has on our lives. He has positioned each one of us in specific circumstances. We have family members. We have people that we interact with professionally. We have neighbors. And I think an openness on our part to see God as positioning us strategically To be a blessing to those in whose life He has positioned us, but also for us to struggle and get mirrored back where our rough edges are, where our imperfections are. They come out in the context of these human relationships and allowing God to really just work more through us and to be present. That's why I came to conclude it's not about measuring outcomes. I think what we should care about is am I doing? what God calls me to do. And at times that may be uncomfortable. At times that may be not what I would choose. But as we patiently endure, we experience God's transformative work in our lives. And I think it has a ripple effect in the lives of others that probably we will only know in eternity and not in the here and now. And we grow in our understanding, the goodness and graciousness of God. And that will be a song that we will sing through eternity because we have encountered God in this life, in all the trials that we faced and we have experienced that he's faithful, that he is good, and that he deserves to be the God of the
8: universe.
3: Yep, And because as Lou said, our job is not to measure. Our job is to collaborate with him. The reason why they are singing a new song that nobody else can learn is not the lyrics, it's not the tune, it's not something else, a special case of special educational needs. They just can't get the song. It's because it's so unique to your experience with God that only you can sing that song in a convincing and genuine way because your experience is different than my experience. And as Xerox company says on the billboard, experience cannot be copied. Good theology.
7: Howard, to answer your question, Daniel, by referring to the words of Paul in Philippians, imitating Christ. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And until we reflect him, then we fail in our
3: Yes, and as Henry put, I can measure every moment how much God is accomplishing on me or in me when I see how many I still don't love and accept. As the American writer Anne Lamott said, when it turns out that your God hates all the same people that you do, you can safely assume you have made God in your own image. There's a work to be accomplished on your soul. Livius?
1: Yeah, and maybe on the same vein, he's waiting for a people that will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Yep. Right? So, And when that happens... These people are situated on the four corners of the earth. That's why the tribes are listed in Revelation chapter 7. The tribes of Israel are listed that way because they were oriented, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And he's going to have people all over this world. The gospel will have gone to the whole world, and then the end will come. And so when the winds are loose, he's going to have these people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes and be his witnesses so people can make a decision, can make a choice, and make a judgment.
3: And that's why, because these people are in different corners, Because they have a unique opportunity, unique perspective, and that's why they have a unique contribution. And that's why the mission is completed only when all these people are gathered from every tribe, kindred, nation, and people. But notice, still in the New Jerusalem, they are recognizable as different kinds of tribes, kindred, nations, and peoples. And that's why we know it's the church, because the empires homogenize people. Everybody needs to do the same thing. When we humans who freeze water, we get ice cubes, boring, homogeneous uniformity. But when God freezes water in the atmosphere, he gets snowflakes. And that's why the church must be different. The New Jerusalem is different from the Babel in Genesis. Everybody was thinking the same. That's not the fulfillment of Christ's prayer that they all may be one. That's the counterfeit, if you look under number seven. Number eight, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit produces more diversity that is given by everything else. Gender, the way male brain functions is different than female brain functions. The ethnic origins, cultural perspectives. Americans think differently than Russians. Jews differently than Gentiles. Socioeconomical status. Rich people think differently than poor people. That's why when we say that Jesus was tempted in everything, like us, wait a minute, that needs to be quantified. If he had the temptations of a male, that means he didn't have the temptations of female. If he had the temptations of a rich guy, he didn't have the temptations of the poor guy. But in order to be a savior, you don't need to experience all temptations. Extroverts are different than introverts. But God says, this is still not enough. Let me give each one of you a different spiritual gift so that we have more diversity than the diversity that is embedded in our DNA. If you look at number nine... The fellowship of the Holy Spirit does not produce a battery farm of similar clones, but a vast family of precious individuals, each one loved and valued for their uniqueness. That's how God's mission is accomplished, how it's completed, that we have all something to contribute and to bring to New Jerusalem, that God preserves your uniqueness, that you can contribute to God's mission. And when you see this, it doesn't end up in you feeling guilty it ends up to see the potential that God has put in you and that he has not given up on you. And if he can work with Esther and Mordecai and Simon and Pharisees, he can work with each one of us. Lou? I
4: need to submit every day to God because apart from him, I like to be first. I like to win. I can be pretty full of myself. And I think that's the battle, the struggle that we have to fight every day is the battle against me, myself, and I, and put God, others first in love.
3: Yes, because experience, Lou, taught you that if you want to succeed in the world of males, you have to think of yourself. Otherwise, you are not going to succeed.
4: And look at the disciples. They wanted to sit next to Jesus, the two brothers. There's a lot of self in our human nature. And I'm just thankful that God doesn't give up on us. He just keeps at us. And the Holy Spirit, he loves us in spite of ourselves, and he doesn't
8: give up.
3: Thank you. Ashley?
8: I see. I think two sides of this. I think there's either extreme where you assume you know everything (laughs) (laughs) and that everyone should do it your way or... You don't think you have anything to contribute and your experience isn't meaningful. So sometimes I think we tend to like vacillate on either side. Reminds me of this rabbi, I can't remember his name, but it's like everyone should have two pockets or two pieces of paper. And in one hand, you should have one that says, I am but a speck of dust. And then in the other one, it says, the world is created for me. (laughs) So I think for me personally, I probably tend to unfortunately err on the side of being like, well, I don't know if I have anything super meaningful to say, but just like I don't think there are many brand new ideas. I feel like most, a lot of people at least probably underestimate how many others are also feeling the same thing as they are. But I think there is like a piece of maybe fear sometimes that you don't want to speak out or say what you're thinking. But most of the time I feel like when someone else does it, I'm oh well, thank goodness. Like I really respect that when they say something and then like, oh, like I should have done that. So anyway, self-awareness is a Good thing. I think sometimes helps in these situations. But yeah, I think the more humble we get, which shouldn't be self more pessimistic than we should be, I think the humility is having like some sort of accuracy and how you perceive yourself, not seeing yourself too high, but also acknowledging your strengths and your experience is valid. So,
3: and in the words of Ellen White, it offends God if we think too low about ourselves
8: because he paid such a price
3: for us to give us the dignity and the value. That's right. Michael?
2: Echoing what Ashley said, I need to broaden my horizons. and it encompasses much more than my narrow little world in front of me. And that I think of Jesus when he talked about the man that's going on the road to Jericho, falls into robbers, who takes care of him? A Samaritan who were despised by the Jews. And similarly, the woman at the well, another Samaritan. And she says something about him that none of his disciples saw. She referred to him as the savior of the world, not just the Jews, but the savior of the world. And I think Jesus picks these people, particularly in my own personal life, to broaden my horizons and realize that there's a great big world out there filled with lots of other people besides me. And I don't run things. I barely run the household. No, I don't run the household I live in. There's a lady that runs it, but my point is I need to try to humble myself every day, try to follow God's view for my life, not yours, but mine.
3: Yes, and it's not only the story of Good Samaritan, thank you, Michael, but there are these six narratives in Luke that show how Jesus is doing the mission from the position of weakness. So you have the story of the Samaritan opposition. The disciples want to destroy them by fire. And in chapter 9, and then chapter 10, it's the good Samaritan who helps the Jews. And then you have the 10 healed of leprosy, and who is the one who comes back to thank God? A Samaritan. So Luke says, Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. He is resolutely set to accomplish his mission, and how does he do it? In a very unorthodox, unexpected way from the position of weakness. That those who are despised and not seen as insiders, are the ones that God uses to teach the lesson. That's why when the disciples are not there, they are missing at the cross. Suddenly, women appear, and Simon, the black man from Africa, and Joseph of Arimathea. Now, imagine how embarrassing. Here are the disciples who walked with Jesus for three and a half years, and in his hour of greatest need, they forsake him. but other people appear on the scene and fulfill the mission. So God is working in this world. And every time we create an exclusive in and out group, whenever we define the world as us versus them, we are not fulfilling the mission and God has not accomplished it because that's why he came. We are grieving the Holy Spirit because God in Christ stepped into our world to demolish all the walls of separation and discrimination and prejudice and bias. And he can work with everyone and everybody can make their own contribution. And in this way, you are not making people feel guilty. Are we there yet? Are you hastening the second coming by being engaged in mission? That's a mistranslation, guys. That's a mistranslation of the Greek word. Get a modern translation of the Bible. The Greek word means eagerly awaiting. Because once again, it turns the attention not on what God is doing and his mission, but on you that somehow God depends on me, that if I do my part, then then it will be accomplished. Yeah, Maurice Wenden used to tell the story about the man who woke up because the alarm clock went on, and so he reached and hit it. And that was the moment when the World War II started. And for the rest of his life, he lived with regrets. If I didn't hit the alarm, the war would not have happened. Not exactly like the fish that was afraid to take a sip in the ocean because the ocean might go dry. No, you are important, but God is accomplishing his mission. It's not your hastening of the second coming that makes the difference. It's your closeness to God that creates an opportunity to see what a great God we serve and how all can make a contribution that is valid even in the new Jerusalem and is seen as such that they all bring the glory there. Sure, ultimately it's God's glory, but everybody has a role to play. And when we see this, God is accomplishing his mission, and one day a generation will come that will be the last, and the mission will be completed. But that's not for us to worry about. For us is to worry about that we are closer to him every day, every moment, and that we allow him to work out in us his salvation and to heal us of our Biases, prejudices, and us versus them thinking. Let's pray. So here we are at the conclusion of another quarter, our Lord. And we have studied about your mission, and we ask that you forgive us that so often people have been hurt because somehow in our zeal and eagerness, we considered our mission your mission. And help us in the coming days and weeks to see the work that you are doing within us, to be sensitive to the work that you are doing around us, and somehow to play a small part in the work that you want to do through us to be a blessing to other people. And thank you that you see the value and dignity of each one of us. We would never imagine that you want to use each one of us to be part of this great story that you are concluding in this universe. And we want to tell you that we will be eternally thankful for what you have done for us and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen.